Just a warning to our listeners that this episode contains mention of rape and sexual assault. Welcome to another episode of Checkmate, a political podcast from Tenement Yard Media. You can follow us on Twitter at TenementYard underscore, and you can visit our website at www.tenementyardmedia.com. I'm the host for this episode, and my name is Paige. In this episode, I will be speaking with Janice St. Romain, and we will be talking about the CCJ ruling that males can be raped. Thank you for joining me, Janice. Hi, everyone. Hello to the listeners. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. So Janice has an LLB in law from the University of the West Indies, Cave Hill, and is a holder of a legal education certificate, as well as an LLM in legal drafting from Cave Hill as well. Um, Janice is a 2021-2022 Chevening Scholar. Um, currently pursuing a LLM in international trade law at the University of Leeds, and she is the co-founder and director of the National Moot Association of Antigua and Barbuda. Yes, all of that sounds really great when you put it like that. <laughs> it is, it is a really impressive resume. So can you briefly give us an overview of the case of Commissioner of Police versus Stephen Allen? Sure. Okay, so let's just hop right into it. So this was a case that was appealed in the appellate jurisdiction, and it was appealed from Barbados. So what that really means is the CCJ, or the Caribbean Court of Justice, actually sits in two jurisdictions. One is its original jurisdiction, which means it interprets the Treaty of Chagaramas, which is what establishes, you know, CARICOM. And then the other jurisdiction that it tends to sit in is the appellate jurisdiction. So that just means it hears the highest cases from those countries that are subscribed to it as their highest court. So this one is from Barbados. Um, Barbados appeals to the CCJ. It concerns a case as to whether or not the law permits a man to be charged for the rape of another man. Um, in it, Stephen Allen was charged with the offense of rape, contrary to Barbados's Sexual Offenses Act. But before the start of the trial in the magistrate's court, he was actually discharged after the magistrate heard submissions because the magistrate was of the opinion and decided that the crime of rape did not extend to anal intercourse between men. So this is and in so, Barbados that the local yes. courts dismissed this? Yes. Okay. So this is specific to Barbados's Sexual um, Offenses Act, mm -hmm. Section 3.1. Well, we're going to be looking at 3.1 and 3.2. I mean, 3.1 and 3.6. Okay. So this was then appealed by the commissioner of police, which is who brings cases or who would have brought the case before the magistrate. Yeah. So this was then appealed up to Barbados's court of appeal. At the court of appeal level, the justices in the court of appeal actually agreed with the magistrate's decision. And okay. thereafter... The commissioner of police once again appealed to the CCJ, which is the highest court. Okay. Um, and the CCJ did not agree with either the magistrates or the court of appeals position, which is what we're going to be talking about today. A bit of what the law actually says, 
the ways in which they both interpreted it. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone is, I guess you're free to have your own interpretation. That's the thing about the law. It's, it can be very black and white. It can also be very gray. And that's why you have some of the highest learned minds disagreeing as to way in, the way in which the legislation should have been interpreted. Okay, thank you for that. And I really hope that sets a great foundation for listeners in the, you know, to go forward with the conversation. Can you expound on the CCJ's approach versus the Barbados Court of Appeals approach in their judgments, factoring in Section 9 of Barbados's Sexual Offense Act that creates an offense of buggery, which by any means is prohibited, whether consensual or not? Sure, that's a lot to bite off. <laughs> I'm going to try to break it down. Um, so the majority of the CCJ, um, agreed or sorry, not agreed, or would have overturned the ruling in commissioner of police versus Stephen Allen. And so they would have basically said that the law does permit a man to be charged for the rape of another man in Barbados. And that majority was, um, about five judges. Mm-hmm. Well, Justice Saunders, Witt, Anderson, Rajnath Lee, Barrow, and then Justice Jamdar delivered what is called a concurring judgment, which means he agreed with all the rest, but he wanted to say it in his own words, <laughs> so to speak, and add a little bit more. Okay. And then you had a dissenting judgment, which was by, as you pointed out, Burgess, mm-hmm. who kind of agreed with the Court of Appeals approach. So let's talk about what the Barbados Court of Appeal felt. Yes. But first, let's, let's get into what the CCJ said so that we can understand the difference. So the CCJ's position was that when you're interpreting a piece of legislation, and maybe I should actually, should I read it or would that be too boring for listeners? I don't know. <laughs> no, I think you should definitely read it. Okay, so the actual section, which is 3.1, that defines rape, in the Barbados um, Sexual Offenses Act, it says, 3-1, any person who has sexual intercourse with another person without the consent of the other person and who knows that the other person does not consent to the intercourse or is reckless as to whether the other person consents to the intercourse is guilty of the offense of rape and is liable on conviction to indictment, to imprisonment for life, etc. Um, But the important thing there is the the words any person Person. and another person right Mm -hmm. because those words i mean as you hear them you're probably thinking well that's quite gender neutral yes so that is i guess the crux of the matter the court of appeals position was that even though it's the words any person and another person were used yeah the context of the legislation colored it and meant that they could not be interpreted in a gender neutral way (laughs) in in a nutshell that was their argument and so there's another section of the act that goes on to expand on the definition of rape and so I'm going to read that section because that's the section that they kind of used and they considered um colors it okay so this is three six three six says for the purposes of this section Rape includes the introduction to any extent, in any circumstances, this phrase is important, where the introduction of the penis of a person into the vagina of another would be rape, so there's a qualifying circumstance, Mm -hmm. then it says, 
of the penis of a person into the anus or mouth of another person, or an object not being part of the human body manipulated by a person into the vagina or anus of another. Um, without being too boring, the whole purpose of that section was to expand on what rape could be. So I, this yeah. is inclu- this is basically saying these other things can also be considered as rape. The Court of Appeal, when they considered that section in light of what I would have said before, they thought that because it says that phrase, in circumstances where the introduction of the penis of a person into the vagina of another would be rape, they considered that this qualifies everything. So rape in general should then only be through the lens of that qualifier in a sense. Um, Because even though 3.1 was very gender neutral, because 3.6 in the expansion sort of limits it, they assumed it was limiting it, I should say, then they were saying, you know, a man cannot then be raped by another man. Okay. So the CCJ in their argument... Oh, and then, as you mentioned, Section 9. So Section 9 of the Sexual Offenses Act is the crime, so to speak, or the offense, I should say, of buggery. Um, and that, as well, the Court of Appeal used to come to their conclusion because they considered that that was still a crime, so to speak, or an offense on the books of Barbados. The CCJ, on the other hand, (laughs) had a lot to say about the way in which the Court of Appeal um, interpreted it. And of course, they disagreed with it. And they criticized a lot of what I just explained. Yeah, so just, I guess, to then continue on what the CCJ had to say about the Court of Appeal's interpretation, What the CCJ was saying is that there has to be consistency. When you're interpreting legislation, it has to be consistent with the Constitution. That was their starting point. And so they were saying, constitutionally, in Barbados, there's this right to the protection of the law, regardless of sex, and there's a prohibition against discriminatory laws. So that was their starting point. Then they said, next, Barbados is signed on to a number of international agreements. Mm -hmm. And so there's this assumption that when you're a sovereign state, you don't uh, go against what in the international forum you've said you will do and you'll uphold. And so based on those international law commitments, they were saying, you know, equality before the law, regardless of gender. And then there's this enjoyment of fundamental rights and freedoms without restrictions based on sex. All of that was really important when you're considering the interpretation of Section 3.1. And then when it came down to it, (laughs) they were just like, it's right there. <laughs> the it's it's literally it says person. Person in and of itself is gender neutral. Yeah. There's no there's no way around that. Why are we making this such a big deal? They didn't say that, but to me it's almost apparent in the way they go through it. Mm-hmm. And they kind of systematically just kind of knock down each of the arguments of the court of appeal. So what they were saying is that the court of appeal before they even decided should have before even deciding to use section nine, which is the buggery offense. They were saying they should have first, before using that as an aid to interpretation, considered whether or not it was even constitutional. Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, they didn't say whether it was or wasn't, but they said that the court should have considered that, which, you know, sort of implies maybe they don't think it is. Mm -hmm. And they also said, you know, they should have considered whether 
buggery law is even, or the buggery offense on the books is even consistent with those international um, norms. Yeah. As I just pointed out, is important in interpretation. They then went on to say that the reason they considered in section 3.6 that it was framed as um, circumstances when I read it, I'm just going to repeat the phrase again so that we're all on the same page. The phrase is that in circumstance, rape includes the introduction, dot, 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 in circumstances where the introduction of the penis of a person into the vagina of another would be rape. Okay. They were saying the reason that that qualifying circumstance is given is not for us to view it through that lens, but just so that in expanding on the definition of rape, we understand that in circumstances where we would have considered it to be rape, between a man and a woman almost, yeah. if something similar happens, then it can be considered as rape. Okay. I, th- I think that's probably the easiest way to break it down. Okay, so that phrase is and not there to limit the understanding, but to expand it. Yeah, so it's there exactly that. They're saying it's there to just give context in a sense. Yeah. So where actions that would have been done in those circumstances would would amount to rape, then now with this expanded definition, they would also amount to rape. Um, And so they actually reference things like the application of force, like impersonation of someone, fraudulent representations, the use of a position of authority. In those types of circumstances where there's penetration, between uh, a male and a female and you would have assumed it would have amounted to rape without consent then in circumstances where there is penetration and a man has now inserted his penis i mean into the anus of another man then it would also be rape so that was kind of important for them to qualify and overall they just disagreed with the way in which this the court of appeal went about it and I, I can go more into that, but at this point, I don't know how much more you want me to, to say. No, that was good. Thank you. Thank you. I, I'm just thinking and processing it as you're saying it, because I'm also learning a lot, and I hope our listeners are learning a lot as well. Um, so I guess I'll jump into the, the next question or the next statement. The lone dissenting opinion was written by Justice Burgess, a native of Barbados and a product of its judiciary. In looking at this case, in particular, the statutes in question, he used the common law definition of rape, which he puts as, quote, a man having sexual intercourse with a woman without her consent by force, fear, or fraud, end quote, um, to develop his opinion. Can you expound on common law and contrast it with acts of parliament? Sure. Uh, so yeah, the dissent was by Justice Burgess, and interestingly, he was a former Court of Appeal judge mm-hmm. in Barbados. Mm-hmm. So um, the, I guess in a sense, he would have agreed with his the persons that are now in the Court of Appeal. Um, yeah. The thing about the common law is that acts of Parliament sort of trumpet. <laughs> so the common law is just uh, how do I put this? They are rules of law that have crystallized over time 
um, and they're sort of handed down to us from our former colonial masters in a sense because we adopted the British system yeah um, and so Parliament when they specifically legislate on an issue that trumps what would have obtained in the common law and so it's really interesting to me that he's talking about the common law definition when you have a sexual offenses act mm -hmm. that clearly defines what the offense of rape is i'm not sure why he goes back to it i mean it's just nice for historical context but i'm not sure why he would bring it up mm -hmm. his whole argument or his dissent rests on he starts off by saying that you know when you interpret statute you should use something that's called the literal rule um, and what that means is that where a word is obvious and it has its plain meaning there's no need to dig any further so on the face of it a person means person yeah. and there's no need for you to go any further than that so he starts off by saying that he uses the literal rule and then he also goes on to say that um, legislation is always speaking so that's a whole other concept which is that what may have been the law a hundred years ago it has to be interpreted in light of everything that has happened since yeah you know the law it's not stat it, it's not sorry it's not set in one place it is constantly evolving so both of those things i agree with yeah. so it's very interesting that he says all of that but then his actual arguments are that well he actually says you know at the time that the act was written he uses a definition from the english dictionary as to the date of sexual as to the definition of sexual intercourse at the time that the act was passed cap 154 and he said at the time it was defined as male female intercourse okay. and so his argument is that it should still be male female intercourse but he was the same person that just outlined that the law <laughs> is not, not static, static. And it's yeah. always yeah so it's it's very interesting um <laughs> I think lawyers would probably read his dissent and maybe have a chuckle. Um, I don't know. Those are, these are just my personal views. Um, he's a very esteemed judge. Let me not, I'm not in no way taking away from that, but I just don't necessarily agree with his conclusions in this particular instance. Yeah, I mean, um, and based on what you said, he may not either, based on the, the preamble he gave. Yeah, his... I think his argument actually defeats his own argument. It's really interesting. <laughs> um, so he actually says, you know, if Parliament wanted to change the common law, then they would have expressly said that men could rape men. Mm -hmm. And so his position is because the government, well, because Parliament didn't go so far as to actually say that in the legislation, then it's not possible, right? But the thing is, I, I mean, that same argument works in the alternative if parliament only wanted to define the offense as between a man and a woman then they would have said that as yeah, it is exactly. they said a person and another person and both men and women are persons so that means it's either at least that's my deduction i don't know a very literal deduction I wanted to redo my definition of common law because I feel like what I said before was way too bumbling. Yes. 
common law is basically a binding set of precedents. So when a court makes a decision, it becomes a part of the common law. So every decision ever, all amalgamated together, when they are moving together in a similar vein, in a sense, they're, they're forming precedent, and that precedent is the common law. So everyone is moving in this one stream of consciousness. We all agree that rape is defined as, a man, as between a man and a woman, for instance. Then that is the common law. But then you have what I was saying trumps the common law is laws made by parliament. So common law is a system of laws which are based on custom and court decision rather than specific written laws made by parliament. Usually, we start with the written laws that our parliament have handed down to us. When there are gaps in them, we fall back onto, well, what's the common law? What have other courts decided? So that's how they kind of, the common law works in tandem. If you don't have a specific written law on, I don't know, an issue, then you substitute the common law. What does everyone else in the world or in similar courts say about this? And usually our similar courts are, we look to the English courts because that's where most of our, our laws came from. Um, so to answer the question, which is, do courts look to one another for interpretive aid? The answer would be yes, but they look to similar courts sometimes. And so going back to that word precedent, there's a difference between binding precedent and persuasive precedent. So to make it quick, you guys know the hierarchy of courts. So there's the magistrate's court, there's your high court, there's the court of appeal, and then there's your highest court, whether it's the Privy Council or the CCJ. If, for instance, in Jamaica, your highest court is the Privy Council, if they say something, then what they say is binding precedent on every other smaller court beneath them, which would have been those that I listed. So that's binding precedent. For you, if the CCJ says something, the Privy Council is not bound by it because those two courts are on the same level. They can look at it, but it's only persuasive precedent in the sense that, wow, this really learned judge who is also sitting on a very high caliber court has decided this about this particular issue. We are going to consider what they're saying, but we don't have to follow it. We can listen or we can form our own opinions. And so the highest courts or courts on the same level do tend to look around at what other courts on similar levels in similar jurisdictions, I know that's a lot of qualifications, but um, they tend to look at what they're doing, how they legislate on things, but it's not binding. They don't have to listen. The only thing that you usually have to listen to is the court immediately above you or the court above you, not immediately above, because you could be at the magistrate court level, but you have to listen to the highest court. So hopefully that gives a bit of a context to the way in which the precedent thing works and the way in which they consider each other's judgments. So for instance, in this particular case, the court of appeal in coming to their determination, which the CCJ found incorrect, looked at um, Australian legislation. So they looked at other jurisdictions, but they looked in jurisdictions that are similar because, you know, Australia is also like a Commonwealth um, jurisdiction. So usually we look at places similar. In the Caribbean, we don't really have a heavy reliance or we don't look very much at what the United States is doing because they have a very different legal system. 
So when our courts are comparing or looking at other cases, they look to they look to usually Australia, they look at New Zealand, sometimes even India. Um, I just wanted to ask you to expound on because you've outlined a lot of this case and the dissenting opinion and all of that, but I want you to expound on the possible effects that this judgment may have on countries in the Caribbean where same-sex activity is illegal? Um, well, the thing is, the CCJ starts off in the outset by being very clear that in this appeal, they're not talking about constitutional validity, about consensual anal sex between adults. They, mm-hmm. they distance themselves from it in a sense. So it's a case solely on statutory interpretation about Barbadian law on rape. It's very separate from the law on buggery. Um, But in a number of of jurisdictions, Barbados included, the thing is the laws on buggery or the buggery offense are being challenged anyway. So I think the Bajan case of that nature is actually going to be having a judgment just next month. Um. Yeah. And there are actions that have been filed in a couple of other countries as well. I know there's one, I think there's one that's been filed in St. Lucia, St. Kitts. Definitely there's been one that's filed in Antigua and Barbuda. Um, In Antigua and Barbuda, the case is almost at its conclusion. I think at this stage, Mm -hmm. it's just for the judge to make a declaration. So the buggery situation is that just so to give context, I guess, to everyone that's listening. So section nine of the Sexual Offenses Act of Barbados, it criminalizes the act of buggery, which I don't know, should I give a definition here or do we all know what that means? I'm pretty um, sure we all know what that means. Right. So anal sex basically is criminalized um, either between men or, or between a man and a woman. And the actual maximum pa- penalty for that is life imprisonment. So it's pretty clear that that type of prohibition causes harm to members of the LGBTQ community in Barbados um, and in other islands where that type of law is on the books because it criminalizes that type of sexual conduct um, in cases where it's consensual. And on an international level, you have the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights they have actually spoken out and said, of course, that that type of legislation, it contributes to an environment that condones discrimina- discrimination. So, I mean, yeah. it adds to the stigma in society. It, it sort of fuels violence against LGBTQ persons. Um, and so it's, those types of laws are almost used as a mechanism for social control. So it's not good that they're on the books. Um, And I think I'm straying from your answer a bit. But this particular case, because the CCJ has kind of chosen not to speak about it, um, they they don't address it head on. But I mean, there are little little tidbits that they leave, which I think are important. Like I said, they they mentioned that before the Barbadian Court of Appeal decided to even look at that law, they should have considered whether or not it was constitutional first. Um, And I think that that saying that has a bit of an implication. Personally, I, I take that as implying that they don't agree with it. But I mean, that's just my interpretation. They don't explicitly say so. I was just going to say, I think we share that interpretation as well. Yeah, yeah. So they, 
they kind of avoid it, but at the same time, they leave us these little these little notes maybe that signal their displeasure at it. But I think most governments across the region have not been putting up much of a fight when they've been challenged. Um, at this stage, I think that it's largely political. And I think this is where you can probably let me know whether you agree. But I know that to me, it seems many governments are afraid of upsetting perhaps the various um, maybe Christian councils in the respective islands. And so they don't actually want to legislate on the issue. And they have yeah. actually, I know, for instance, um, the prime minister of Antigua Barbuda has actually on his on his radio show, he's actually said, you know, if there's an issue with the law, take it to the courts. He has no problem with that. He's not expressly going to move towards legislating on the issue, but um, tackle it through the courts. He has no problem with that. And so I think it's more of a political move than anything else that is probably holding it back. But yeah, there have been a number of challenges across the region that will hopefully be successful, fingers crossed. Oh yeah, I think you're absolutely right about it being a, a political move because I know here in Jamaica the church carries a bit of weight, um, a bit. The church carries weight when it comes to a lot of these um, these issues. So you'll hear the church inputting their opinions on things like the buggery law and most recently, in my memory, abortion. Um, so I think the government is playing the waiting game and waiting for someone to challenge it in the court. That way they are not the ones responsible for making this law. Um, right. That way they can win their re-elections. Yeah, that's pretty much, it's the safest route for them. Um, and I think that's that's just what we have to sit back and wait on. Right. Um, just to shift gears a bit, um, seeing that a magistrate court and the Court of Appeal of Barbados had a different view of opinion than the ruling of the CCJ, expound on the, the possible impact that this might have on countries thinking of switching to the CCJ as their final court. Well, I mean, I'm, I would love to hear your views on this as well, because personally, I don't necessarily think it will have a very large effect. Um, so the CCJ was sort of rejected already. In, in Antigua and Barbuda, we had a referendum and um, it was sort of rejected. I think the same thing would have happened in St. Kitts and Grenada. And in each of those cases, it wasn't about, or at least the liberal quote unquote views of the court were not really raised as an issue. What was raised was, um, you know, fears from the populace about like impartiality and corruption. And yeah. it was more, it became more of a political issue. Uh, it became about the politics of referenda and a, a number of other small little issues were raised, but it was never really that the court is too liberal with its views. Um, I think it's just that many people just, in those cases may not have trusted the impartiality. They think it's influenced by politicians, which it isn't. I believe that the CCJ is quite impartial. I mean, the way in which the judges are selected is testament to that. Um, so I don't think that it would have a negative effect. Um, mm -hmm. St. Lucia has recently, I think, been the latest to announce that they're moving towards the CCJ. And the funny thing is, too, the Privy Council has actually been, I would say they've been ready to get rid of most of us, those of us who haven't left us yet. 
And in a sense, they've been adapting some of the jurisprudence from the CCJ. Um, so, I mean, there are cases like Prasad versus the COP. There was even a Jamaica case. I think it's JFJ Jamaica where the Privy Council referred to CCJ jurisprudence. So, I mean, the court itself has, I would say, a personality. It has a good reputation. It is a credible yeah. court. Um, at this point, I think politics is what is holding us back from shifting to the CCJ and not necessarily exactly. liberalism. No, I, I completely agree. Because when you were going to ask me my opinion, I was going to say it's politics. Because I could see a politician leveraging what the populace might think of a, you know, what the populace might think a negative opinion is and using that to their political right. advantage. A lot of that would have happened. And you know what? And again, everything I'm saying here is just my personal view. But I feel as if collectively on both sides, mm -hmm. we all know that the CCJ is the best decision. We all agree that we need to move away from someone outside of the region holding our fate in their hands. But on the political level, no party wants to give such a big win to the other. They want to be the ones to bring the CCJ in under, you know, their reign. And so that's why we have this kind of fighting down the system as opposed to working together, which is very unfortunate. Unfortunate indeed. Um, uh, and lastly, I will ask you to expound on the impact that this ruling might have on... Caribbean jurisprudence and the future of how the region views gender and sexuality? Ah, that is such a heavy one. <laughs> um, yeah. Very heavy. Um, I think at this stage, the case has kind of already made waves. You know, it made quite a few headlines um, just because we are such a how should I put this? We're, I feel like we have very traditional societies. We have very traditional views. Um, and so very traditional views on gender, very traditional views on sexuality. Um, but I think it's important because at least in, Barba in the Barbadian context, you have a situation where there are male victims of sexual violence by males. They're no longer being ignored by the system, which is good. Um, I think yeah. usually policy responses to these types of cases or sexual violence, they exclusively focus on the effect on women and on girls, but they sort of ignore male victims and their need for support, assistance. Um, but of course, you know, there's evidence of a prevalence in our societies of sexual violence against men and against boys and yeah. perpetrated by, by men. So that, I don't know, the stereotype of that traditional masculinity is usually held as inconsistent with the position of victimhood. So there's that general misconception that men are immune from sexual violence. And to me, that stems from the whole gender stereotype of women as weak, and therefore they're usually the victims. So things like this yeah. case and just legislating on the interpret, sorry, the ruling on the interpretation of the legislation in this way, it really shows that Sexual violence is just as much a, a sort of men's issue as it is a woman's issue. Um, and now the current Barbadian framework includes this interpretation. Men are able to be victims at the, hand, the hands of other men, which is really important, I think, for tackling that aspect of sexual violence. So, yeah, those are, yeah. <laughs> those are my thoughts. 
Um, and I would hope that, I mean, I am not a lawyer operating in the jurisdiction of Barbados, but I am quite impacted. In this. I've read the judgment. I agree with it. You have a number of jurisdictions or lawyers across various jurisdictions who are reading it. You have persons who are not lawyers who are reading it and who are impacted by it. And so I can only hope that it, it continues to expand the way all of us are thinking towards sexual violence, towards, um, well, rape and, and who can rape. And it's just, I think it's quite important in that context. No, it absolutely is. And I'm hopeful for the future of legislation and policy in, in the Caribbean as it, as it regards to gender and sexuality. Yeah, it, it's definitely, I think, uh, it's a small win, an important win. Um, I think the CCJ has kind of been forging its own jurisprudential path for some time. Um, and as you know, you alluded to earlier, maybe they're a bit liberal or persons at least think that they're liberal. But I think it's nice that we have a court that is not afraid to make judgments that really hone in on equality and that are against discrimination and that, well, some might term as liberal. I think it's important and I'm glad that they're there and that they're they're taking these types of positions and approaches. Well, hopefully there is more to come and better to come for all people in the Caribbean, um, but of course, including LGBTQ plus individuals. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, thank you for your interpretations. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I'll be really honest. I read the entire thing and did not quite understand it, but you did a really amazing job of explaining it to me. And I hope our <laughs> listeners feel the same way hopefully that I wasn't even more complicated uh if you just didn't understand anything or you disagree with some of my views I mean I just want to put it out there to your listeners you don't have to agree with what I was saying feel free to argue with me on Twitter or otherwise or reach out to me on a professional platform I find this really interesting I would love to engage with you thank you so much for having me um it's been great to be here Thank you again. And this has been another episode of the Checkmate Political Podcast by Tenement Yard Media. Don't forget to check us out on social media at Tenement Yard underscore, and that's our Twitter, and on our website at www.tenementyardmedia.com. And don't forget to share the podcast with a friend. Mm-hmm.